BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. I will never forget how many times I stopped what I was doing to watch an Instagram video of Mike Perry stopping in traffic to save a turtle. I don't even think any words were spoken, but it was awesome. Like Perry just has it. What's happening, guys? Happy Tuesday, and thank you for joining another special episode of Your Welcome. We got a busy week ahead in combat sports. It looks like Dylan Dennis is actually going to be fighting with Logan Paul, plus Conor McGregor has apparently and finally entered the USADA testing pool. Lots to talk about, guys. Let's waste no time and start here. Bobby Green versus Dan Hooker. I'm in. I'm in. I'm going to put a poll up on YouTube, and I'm going to ask you guys this question. Is that the fight that you want to see? And, and when you see it and you click on it, I want you to interpret it in the following way. Is there a fight for Bobby Green you'd rather see? You don't have to even say who it is. Is there a fight for Bobby Green you would rather the UFC announced? Is there a fight for Dan Hooker that you'd rather see? Is there a fight for Dan Hooker that you've been hoping, or maybe we could get close, maybe you've even tweeted about it? that you would like to see more than this idea. I don't think so. And for me, it's not even close. You want to talk about a BMF and what what it takes and and how you qualify? It's Dan Hooker. It's Dan Hooker. Dan Hooker is the BMF. And he may not be the BMF champion, but that's a matter of logistics and a contract. Dan Hooker had one of his great moments in defeat. I appreciated this guy, and I knew how good he was. Dan Hooker versus Dustin Poirier for five rounds on free TV, I should mention, is the greatest fight in that division's history. I'm not sure I'm going far enough. You heard me pause there. It's going to say in in fighting history. I'm just going to go ahead and say that division. But it had two rounds, and I believe it was two and four. It's been a while since I've seen this. That were the greatest rounds I have ever witnessed. And that includes over Griffin Bonner, round three. Dan Hooker versus Dustin Poirier, if you haven't seen it, which, by the way, was a split decision. You want to know how good Dan Hooker is? He was ranked number five in the world. And not to mention, he didn't belong in the weight class. And that's evident of the fact that eventually he left the weight class and went down to 145 pounds like he was one of these tweeners. He either go down to 45 which proved to be a little bit too much of a suck, or he could try to put on about five pounds. And that might sound easy to you guys. It's not easy when you're a hooker. When you're training twice a day, every day, right? It's calories in to calories out. He's eating the, drinking the protein. He's eating the food. He's trying to do all these things. And then he's going to burning. 
in two sessions a day. Like you can only get so big. And I'm just sharing with you, like Hooker did all of these things, but did number five in the world, put on the greatest display to the point there was a split decision and one judge felt that he won. I don't know if I had an opinion. This was so close where I'm going, eh, glad I'm not judging this match. Oh, I got a coffee in this. Oh, oh, my producer Ryan's going to be pissed. How long has this cup of coffee been sitting there? Mmm, still warm. Mean Street Coffee. I swear this isn't a plug. I really didn't know it was in the shot. All right. Dan Hooker agrees to go and fight Islam Makhlchev, which is a disastrous matchup. You have what Khabib is claiming to us is the greatest grappler in the sport. That's a huge honor. Like, if you could be an Olympic champion or you could be the guy that Khabib says is the best, I mean, you'd, you'd really have to weigh those two options, right? It's probably harder to get that acknowledgement publicly from Khabib. All right, so you get this great grappler. And he's going to take on a kickboxer from New Zealand. Like, this is a disaster of a matchup from Jump Street, not to mention Dan Hooker had been there and done that. He's a main event guy. He's the number five guy in the world. He's celebrated. People love him. He walks places. People are cheering for him. They want his picture against a guy that you don't know. Well, that, that, that means he's hungry. That's all that means for Islam. He's still on his way up. He's on an ascension. That's the worst time to catch a guy. It is the, the worst match, and it is the worst matchup, and it's going to take place on Fight Island. And Dan Hooker lives in the most restricted country on earth, which was New Zealand, if you guys followed COVID protocols. He knows if he goes to Fight Island, he can't go home. He's got himself a hot-ass wife and a kid, and he knows if daddy goes to work today, I'm not coming home. Which means he knows if he loses to Islam, he is going to sit and dwell in that sorrow and that post-fight depression in a hotel on a different continent, eating foods that he's not used to, driving a car to nowhere because he doesn't have one, speaking to whoever he's willing to pay $3 a minute for, because he doesn't have service, alone. 76 days in a hotel before he could return to his beautiful wife and family. And he did it anyway. And he never said a word. Not before, not till now. You haven't heard anybody say this. You haven't heard Dana say this. You haven't heard Eugene Behrman. Nobody's come out and explained to you. When Dan Hooker got held up for 76 days, that wasn't some surprise. They changed the rules. He knew he was going to be jammed up, but he got a phone call. He got asked to go to work. And like a real man, he didn't say, what's the job? He said, yes, I want to go to work. But this, this, is, this is what a bad mother you know what Dan Hooker is. So now I believe it was Bobby Green's idea. I was told by my producer, Bobby Green has called out Dan Hooker. And I said, hey, can you check that fact? And the only reason I asked him that is I watched the post-fight interview with Daniel Cormier where Daniel asked Bobby specifically, call someone out. And not only did Bobby not do it, he said, I don't do that. They call me and then I go. Which whenever a fighter talks like that, he's talking about you. You think he's talking about Dana White? They call me, they pick the opponent. You think he's talking about Dana White, which will ultimately be the decision maker, but Dana is going to listen to you guys. Bobby knows that. He's a veteran. So when he says they will pick, he's actually talking about you. And I tell you that, just get, get your voices out there. Bobby wants to hear. That's what he's saying when he says that. Get on Twitter. Get on social media. T tell me who you want. Okay, great. I'm going to do my part. Thank you, Bobby. I appreciate the tee-up. I'm telling you what I want. I want Dan Hooker. 
I want Bobby Green versus Dan Hooker. And what I will predict for you will be the greatest fight in the history of Earth. I really, I really think that. Like, that would be such a wild affair. Dan Hooker broke his arm in his last fight, and Joe Rogan asked him about it. And Dan said it's just a scratch. Threw an arm around Joe and finished cutting his promo. Before he ever said so much as, ow. I mean, I wish that they, I wish there was a way to make that for the BMFL. I don't believe there's going to be a lineage to the B, BMFL. I don't believe Justin Gage is going to be asked to defend the BMFL. I say that for a number of reasons. There's contractual reasons that support why I'm saying that, but I also look at history. George Masvidal was a BMF champion, and he fought multiple times while being champion, but the belt was never up for grabs. So if we're just going to move it around, and it's an end-of-the-night ceremonial process, I'm okay with that. I missed the super fight. I love 1993. I liked how SEG did it. You'll get no complaints from me, but if that is what we're doing, I'd rather know that sooner than later. I don't love the idea that we waited till George Masvidal retired before we resurrected it just because we didn't know how to tell a story. Let's sit down with some creative guys. We'll figure out how to tell a story, but either way, like, like Bobby Green versus Dan Hooker, yes, please, works all day. Co-main event of a huge card, UFC 300, however you want to do it. Main event, free TV, any way you want to do it, that fight works all day but I don't think it's enough. That's the kind of fight I see here. That is the kind of action. That is the kind of bludgeoning that I see here. That just to do it because Chael's asking for it, I don't think it's enough. I think we got to put something on it. I don't know that number one contendership is realistic. I don't know where within the rankings. I, I don't know. But I do feel we got to put something on it. And whether I get my way or not, I'd like to see the BMF belt. I think it's a little bit of an unrealistic ask, but I'll start the conversation. But as far as Bobby Green turning and deciding, decided to ask you, ask the public, ask me, ask, ask us, who do you want? I would like to answer King Green. I would like you and Dan Hooker. told the truth. Big deal. It's a big deal that when Connor came out last week and said, I'm back into the USADA pool, it was a big deal that he was not trolling, jerking our train. Because he's only got so many bullets to fire. Now we can accept not getting hard facts from Connor McGregor all the time. We can accept that from anybody. Think of Denzel Washington or Mark Wahlberg or Ed Norton or Tom Cruise. I, really, I think of some of these actors. We don't expect them to always tell the truth. We know that Tom Cruise is not a underground agent with 007 status. Like that, that's not, that doesn't have to be completely accurate all the time. You're allowed to entertain us. You're allowed to storytell. But there's other times where we got to know that this is straight. Look, are you coming back or not? when and who the opponent is and the weight class. Like, we can figure some of those things out later, but if we're going to go and discuss the opponent and the weight class and the win, we can't do any of those things if it isn't true from Jump Street that you're coming back. Just for example, so Conor McGregor thrives and survives off of people like us, people that find him interesting. And then we'll go one step further, which is to publicly discuss him. If that comes to a screeching halt, none of the rest matters. 
You can blow all the coke you want if nobody talks about it. You go beat up all the men you want if nobody talks about it. You can win all the championships and have all the games. If nobody talks about it, it doesn't matter. All the records go away, and now you become an interchangeable mediocrity like the rest of them. And Connor has so clearly distinguished himself because he's got to a point in his career, the hardest, the hardest spot, the final step in have I made it, have I done this? It's not the money, it's not the opportunity, it's not the fight, it's not the organization. The final step, does the outcome of my last match matter? If the answer to that is no, you have made it to the rarest, the unicorn spot of MMA careers. I'm getting ready to fight. I'm going to make a pile of money. Everyone's going to be interested. The media is going to come out. The arena will fill up, and I will be the last fight of the night, meaning I'm the main event. If those things are true, and the outcome of your last fight, whatever it was, cannot detour those statements from being true, you've made it to the final and ultimate step. So I share that with you because that's where Connor's at. But it's still a tag team issue. He can say, I don't count anybody. I don't listen to anybody. I run on Connor time. I do my own thing. He can say all of those things. They will remain true as long as we continue to cover him. The second the coverage goes away, he's done. And I bring that to you because it would have been a big deal. It wouldn't have been the end of the world, I'm shit, right? That, that would be a very deep end, and we wouldn't have gotten there. But it would have been bad, to a degree, had he not entered the USADA pool and just said that he did. Because now we can't trust him. That's not about your opponent. That's not about promotion. That's not about selling tickets. That's not about getting everybody's attention so you can steer them to a different product like a great salesman will do, and he is a great salesman. This is different. That's personal, and it's what we call a material fact. Well, he told the truth. And there's a couple of headlines going around. So, so let me just clear this up for anybody that saw a headline but, but didn't read it. Dana White was asked about this last night. And Dana said, no, Connor's not in the pool. Connor said, I submitted my paperwork, I'm in the pool. Dana clarifies and says, no, he's not in the pool. Well, ho hold on. If you just read that headline, you might be a little confused by the last three minutes of me speaking to you. Connor filled out the paperwork and submitted it. In Connor's mind, that means he's in the pool, which it might as well mean that. Because when that paperwork works through and processes, whether that's 10 minutes later or 10 days later, he won't actually know. As soon as he turns it in, he needs to be ready and understand that he is eligible for testing. Have his whereabouts down, have his system cleared out, whatever that might entail. So that's what Connor did. And Connor believed that that meant that he was in the pool. Dana didn't didn't change this. Dana only clarified to say, Connor did his part. We now have a part in terms of getting this processed, and that will be done by Monday. Which Dana then clarified again to say, Hey, don't hold me to Monday. I just mean it'll be done very soon, for sure, in the next week. Okay, great. I, I just wanted to clear that up for anybody that might have seen a headline. So Connor's in the pool, and John Morgan asked a. a the very obvious question to Dana, he said, look, six months in the pool is what Usada's saying he's got to do. And that happens to line up perfectly with UFC 300. And Dana didn't touch it. Had a real stoic look. No one's going to mind if Connor's on 300, but it wouldn't mind if Connor was on 299 or 302. Like Connor's, Connor's a sellout. And wherever Connor goes, comes a main event. 
I do not believe that they will put Connor on UFC 300 because I believe they will close out the evening, meaning the main event will be a world title fight. But I do want to speak to the issue that Dana got asked this, and Dana just said, hey, look, we got the paperwork in. That's a st- right. We can check that box off. Now we got to process it. We check that box off. Then they got to go test him. Then we got to get a bout agreement. We got to get that paperwork. We got to get that back. We got to do a media tour. There's a lot of things. I'm do. I'm going to do none of them. None. Not looking at 300. Not looking at anything. I'm going to go right in order. Paperwork is now in our possession. That's where we're at. And I respected that answer. I think that we can all understand that. But I do also believe that this looks very good for Michael Chandler. I mean, Chandler has showed an incredible patience. And it's not as though, as we're over here and we're discussing it, Chandler, you got to move on. Chandler, you got to play it this way. Chandler, you got to do something different. Hey, Chandler, he's not in the USADA pool. Hey, Chandler, they don't even have a weight class. Like, while we're doing all of those things, don't think for a moment that that isn't exponentially exemplified within Chandler's emotions, within his family. You think his wife isn't asking him? When you're going back to work, when's training camp? When are we, you think his coaches aren't asking, his managers aren't asking, everybody that, that's in on the business? Of course they are, sure. But he stayed very patient. And now it looks as though he could be within six months of that becoming a reality, which by the time you do a training camp and a media tour, right? I mean, that feels like tomorrow almost. And I am rather confident in telling you it's going to be Michael Chandler. I think that there's some wonderful talks about Nate Diaz. I mean, if Nate Diaz was going to come back and it was only, it's only this, you you could probably see some scenarios where there might be some looking around to do. Michael Chandler did another interesting thing last week, uh, which is he called for another 170-pound fight. Well, it was against Nate Diaz. And I bring that to you because the last two guys that Chandler has attempted to associate himself with, Conor McGregor and Nate Diaz, are both 170-pounders. So I do wonder, is Chandler signifying to us, I am now a 170-pounder? And I don't have that clarity, but I would like it a lot. I think Chandler is very meaningful of 155 pounds. I think Chandler matches up well with Islam Makhlchev, not for nothing. Chandler had a referee looking in. He was one punch and one second away from being pulled off Charles Oliveira and having the belt put around his waist. I mean, Chandler matters, right? We can agree on that. Chandler can beat anybody, sure. There's a handful of guys that can beat him too, but he can beat anybody. But to get to that fight, to get to the Islam fight, to get to a Justin Gaethje-style fight, to be in that elite conversation, you have to beat the next best thing. And Michael Chandler doesn't sound as though right now he's even wanting to compete with them. And I'm okay with it. Michael Chandler wants to fight Nate Diaz. I'm in. I think that Chandler is a legend. I also think he's a veteran. Some of you don't. But that's only because you didn't follow his early career. I had this same feeling when Justin Gaethje came over. I worked for what was known as the World Series of Fighting, where Gaethje was king. He was the main eventer. He was the champion. We went to his alma mater, Northern Colorado University, I mean, I'm just sharing for you, like there was big stuff, went, went to Arizona, which is the state that he's from, Gaethje was the man over there, but a lot of people didn't watch him fight, it wasn't until he got to the UFC that people then saw him, so I'm looking, going, hey, this is a veteran, I think the same way about Michael Chandler, and if he can get himself, if he can get the interest of a Nate Diaz, he already succeeded in getting the interest of Conor McGregor, which is nearly impossible to do, but Chandler has a different set of skills. And if he wants to use those skills to go get super fights, 
or he wants to get the really big match right. It's I'm okay with it. I think it's interesting. And I think for now, maybe for the first time in a year, Chandler whew, can sigh a breath of relief. Connor would not subject himself to the rigors of the testing agencies. He just would not do that if he wasn't planning to come back and fight. Now, planning to do something and it actually happening, believe me, I understand. I'm not here to announce for you Connor's coming back, but I am here confidently to tell you that Connor wants to, believes he is, and Connor would accurately tell you that he is coming back. What does backup fighter mean to you? And this has never been established. Like there, there isn't a policy here within my argument, but backup fighter to me is an absolute acknowledgement that you're next. Number one contender, right? The official number one contender isn't who's ranked number one. The official number one contender is whoever gets the bout agreement opposite the champion. Whoever is next for the champion is number one contender by definition. But to loosely use that word, may not number one contender going to fight for the belt yet. Yeah, Why you can't have two of them at the same time? Give me a little flexibility here on the on the language. I would think that's what backup fighter means. And history would largely support me. Michael Chandler was a backup fighter by example. His next fight was for the title. Just an example. Kamar Usman had done everything. Won the Ultimate Fighter. He's fifteen and one. Beautiful record. Never lost in the UFC. Couldn't get a title fight. He becomes backup fighter. His next fight is then for the title. Just examples that are popping right into my head. Uh, Colby Covington. Maybe one for 2023. Goes out for the, the Leon Edwards versus Kamar Usman trilogy fight. Becomes the number one contender. And it would seem as though that's what you would need to do unless you had some explaining. Right? Maybe you have maybe you have a clear number one contender, but it's a date issue. He's, he's dealing with a, a little injury, something like this. He's got a wedding to attend. I, I mean, I'm just sharing with you, like, maybe there's an excuse why he couldn't do it, so you find someone else, but then you go back to this guy. Like, I don't know that we need a policy or hard and fast rule. There's nothing wrong with us giving ourselves some flexibility for extenuating circumstance. But it would seem as though if a guy is publicly acknowledged that anywhere from now to the fight, anywhere, including at the weigh-in, meaning in 24 hours, anywhere from now till the fight, he's going in. That would make him the number one contender. It seems. It seems as there's some truth to what I'm saying. Like, I've got the right tool, even if I've got it by the wrong end. Can we agree on that? Because Gamrod has been announced as the backup fighter for... Oliveira, Makhlchev. And I'm just wondering what it means. Like, what does it mean? I don't remember the time that we shunned a backup fighter. It has happened. I could find you an example of that. Like, somewhere within my mind, Sergey Pavlich was even a backup fighter. I think that was for John Jones versus Surreal Gone. In fact, I'm right. Sergey was a backup fighter. And had another fight coming up. So we went and did backup fighter for this, and it ended up not happening. He just kept the date and went and fought this guy instead. But when you say that Gamrod is the backup fighter, how did we get there? Did we start with Justin Gaethje? I don't have the answer to that. I would think that Gaethje would have accepted that. 
People used to really want to be a backup fighter. I think it's a coveted position. I think it should come with a little bit more media. There should be a little something more for that spot. But that's my opinion. The marketing department thinks, no, now you're confusing the audience. Don't tell them you're going to get a fight between three, find two guys, have somebody over here on ice. I mean, I get it. I'm just explaining. I'm stating the obvious for you. Conor McGregor is the one that came out and made it uncool. Conor McGregor was offered a backup position. He publicly said, I'm not a backup fighter. I'm a main event. I'm your top draw. I'm not a guy you bring in maybe. I like to build it. I get participation points based on who turns in. They're going to tune in because of my build. I don't want to go out and do some of this work to not deliver for my fans. And at the same time, I don't want to go out and be put in a position to go to work tonight where I didn't have the opportunity to bring my real skill, which was the build. Like, I, I got it. I understood it from Connor's perspective, but like so many things in the sport, once somebody does it, everybody else copies. Whatever appears to be cool, like these fighters are supposed to be tough, autonomous thinkers, have never had an autonomous thought in their life. And after Connor made it as though it wasn't cool, a lot of guys backed away from it and they didn't want to do it. Perhaps that's what happened here with Justin Gaethje. That would be very un-Justin-like to turn down any opportunity, particularly since it's this fight in that weight class. And we saw the last time we literally did this exact same fight in this weight class, in the same venue, everything for the same belt, there was a backup fighter. The backup fighter instantly got the winner. So it would seem as though something Justin would do. But Justin might also be secure enough in his position that he's next that he's going to just wait, right? Comes back to the term I used earlier with extenuating circumstance. Justin might not think I'm in the same position as Volkanovsky or other guys. And Gamrot's not in the same position as me, coming off a victory over Poirier, reigning BMF champion. So whether he goes and fills in for this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity or not, either way, I'm going to shut the book on him when this is done, and I'm going to take my spot back. That could, that could be the math. No problem. But what would you do there? I mean, if Charles Oliveira doesn't show up and or misses weight, which is very on the table, Charles has told us three times he's not doing this fight. Three times. More than three times over the course of his career, Charles has missed weight. Like, it's, it's a very real thing to keep your eyes open and be prepared for this. What if Gamera went in and beat Islam and now he's the champion? I mean, right, everything is now off the board. Everything we thought we knew about this division or where we're going or who the, the players and the contenders are, it's all, you reshuffle the whole deck. And then what if it was Islam's side? Like, what if Islam missed weight and or pulled out of this fight for whatever reason? I believe they would strip him. That's what I believe. Common belief is that Charles would fight and it would be for an interim championship. He would fight Gamrot for an interim championship. That is common belief. I don't know if I believe that. I think it might be the undisputed championship. Charles Oliveira, after all, was promised an undisputed title shot. So if something happened to that champion and you're going to interim it, I think you. I think they might just take the belt off him completely. I mean, that's just a conversation that's just for fun. And I don't believe that's a spot that we're ever going to be in. I can't think of anything that would stop Islam from going through and performing. I could think lots of things that would stop Charles. But it is a very interesting spot of who pulls out, who goes in, and then what outcome do you have? It throws everything in to disarray. Anything that you think you know, right, which would include Gaethje's math. Hypothetically, if, if I was close on Gaethje's math, of, hey, I'm already the guy. 
I don't need to do anything to, to, to strengthen this position. I'm already in that position, right? It would all get thrown off if you change the player. So I think it's an interesting move. I also think it's the right move. Gamrot's as good as any fighter in that division. And you're not going to see a night where you, where you saw Gamrot look like he had deficits, aside from Benny DeRouche, who put on one of the great performances of his career. But I'm going to share for you. Gamrot's a good choice any, any way you want to do it. Coming off a win, no matter how it came, or Fitzayev in a main event. Like, I'm okay with the whole thing. I like that there's an idea. I like that there's a backup fighter there. This card is so heavily dependent on its co-main event for North American sales. But there's other parts of the world that really want to see that main event, specifically with Islam. And to bring in a backup fighter, to me, just makes sense. Guys, the number one question I get asked all the time, what's the most important habit you can build on to be successful? You know what my answer is? Sleep. I am no sleep expert, but I can tell you that for myself, I perform at my optimum level mentally and physically when I'm getting regular deep sleep. And honestly, that hasn't always been easy. This is where Momentous Sleep Pack comes in. Momentous experts created a natural ingredient combination that will help you fall asleep faster, stay asleep longer, and wake up refreshed. The ingredients are so clean that they're used by the best Olympians, pro athletes, and college teams. Momentous Sleep Pack has every certification under the sun, including being NSF certified. I usually take a pack 30 minutes before bed and boom, I wake up feeling like a million bucks. If you're having trouble sleeping and it's affecting your daily performance, I highly recommend Momentous Sleep Pack. Designed by the world's best experts, used by the world's best teams and athletes, and made for all of us, guys. Go to livemomentous.com. Use the promo code CHAIL. That's going to get you 20% off your first order. That's livemomentous.com and use the promo code CHAIL. Dylan Dennis boarded a plane. Plane took off for England. He exited the plane. I'm just sharing it where we're at. It's boots on the ground. If a fighter's ever not going to do a fight, I know that that's an overlap of this whole thing. I know those discussions are happening. I think I even started some of them with the lawsuits and whatnot. Hey, I don't think Dylan should do the fight. That's got to be worked in here and that's all got to go away. Whatever, it's behind us. It would appear. And travel day is a really big day, right? Whoever's planning to blink doesn't get on a plane. You don't blink when you're in England at the same hotel. It's just not the way it's done. And the media is all around. So I think that that's very encouraging. And I mean, imagine if you were the main event of that card. I don't know who the main event of that card is. I just know that this is in a co-main spot. It got put in a co-main spot largely because, in my belief, in my estimation, is Dylan going to do it? There's a $100,000 clause put into the contract. If Dylan pulls out and he can't pass a doctor's test of our choosing, it's a hundred grand. And we've got Mike Perry. And Mike Perry trolled us, by the way. That's not really a Perry move. Perry went on Twitter last week, made a quick video of himself with his iPhone. And he said, well, guys, it's official. I'm in. And I was even hearing from ESPN. Hey, Dylan's out. Go to Dylan. Find out if this is true. Perry says that he's fighting. It's like, Perry didn't say he was fighting. Perry didn't, Perry's exact words was, hey guys, it's official, I'm in. 
he mysteriously and conveniently went out of his way to not say in to what. It was very obviously it was a troll job. You just don't get a lot of troll jobs from Mike Perry. Like everybody needs to come out and find some kind of a gimmick or shtick to try to bring people over to them, to try to try to win people from the audience over. Except Mike Perry. He does not need any kind of help. He is a character that is wildly interesting. I will never forget how many times I stopped what I was doing to watch an Instagram video of Mike Perry. Stopping in traffic to save a turtle. I don't even think any words were spoken. But it was awesome. Like, Perry just has it. So seeing Perry attempt to troll, I'm fine with it. But I will admit that I was a little bit surprised, and I'm pretty confident in telling you guys it's going to be Dylan versus Logan, and thank goodness, and whoever the main event is, I would I would trust as like an actual boxing match. Influencers have been doing a very good job, but I don't know that influencers to this magnitude could be trusted. So you put on an influencer fight, and then you have an actual boxing match. But but whoever that main event is should be so incredibly grateful to Dylan. Like actual pats on the back, actual thank yous. Main events, not standardly, but more common than not, do get participation. They do get back in, they get their guarantee up front, which is all the risk to the promoter. Then if there is rewards that you would think would go to the guy that took the risk, in this business, it's not always that way. You then got to cut in these other guys. And I'm just sharing with you, someone somewhere I trust knows who the main event is. Somebody has heard. But the only piece of this card that I've heard, I know it's in England because of this fight. And I know it's Logan and Dylan, and I know their history, and I know all of the interesting parts. I haven't seen anybody put out training footage of these guys. Yeah, you get a still photo here and there, I understand that. But not like a countdown-style organized show. Not an organized sports show, where you then bring in the experts like Teddy Atlas, and you start talking about, well, you got to get your lead leg, you got to step outside. The guy comes in and says, you got to go to the body, you got to pivot off to the right immediately. I haven't heard any of the X's and O's. I know more often than not, particularly as it pertains to the Paul brothers, they do a great job of making the rounds less and shortening the time. Uh, eight two-minute rounds, for example. But I don't know in this fight. I've It's never come up. Nobody has ever discussed this fight from an X's and O's standpoint. It's just the drama between the two, which is great. It's the only reason you want to see two people fight in the first place. I mean, boxing is so painfully boring. Not only do you put the pillows on their hands, you can only jab, cross, hook, uppercut. There's not another move. And you can only do that to his head, chest, and body. It's not an overly complicated thing. I'm just sharing with you the worst part of the boxing match is the boxing. And in this case, it's a huge fight that people are looking forward to, to the point that it has greatly overshadowed the entire card, including a yet-to-be-known main event. And I don't know any of the rules. I think they're fighting for eight rounds because I think that's what Logan fought Floyd at. But I also think he did that for two-minute rounds. And somebody else told me that I remembered that wrong. And that that was Tyson versus Jones in the two-minute round. These guys are going to go three-minute rounds. But my point is larger and isn't to ask you guys what the rules are. My point is much greater that I can't remember any kind of combat with this level of magnitude and anticipation that didn't have to do 
with who's orthodox and who's a southpaw. Who's been training? How many miles is this guy running? What's your experience? What's your record? How'd you do in the amateurs? I can't remember ever a time that was like this, and I'm completely fine with it. I just want the match to happen. Whoever the main event is is probably going to reap all the rewards and not feel that they have any kind of an obligation to thank Dylan or pitch in on all the stuff that he's going through or bend the ear of Logan Paul and say, hey, don't do that lawsuit business. Like They probably just think that the crowd and the numbers that this business does has to do with them. Fighters are delusional. They're also notoriously bad people. I don't want him to go. I don't want him to go. I don't want him to retire. And John's been training with Gordon Ryan. And they've both spoken about the workouts. And they even put a little clip out and let us see it. And I wish they would put more. Like, it wouldn't matter if, if John's tapping Gordon or Gordon's tapping John. For me, that doesn't matter. It's a workout. But that isn't true for other people, particularly in the jiu-jitsu community. If Gordon Ryan was to tap out, even in practice, the jiu-jitsu community would make this huge thing about it. They would never understand that was just two guys, and they were working hard, and he found this position, and to protect himself, he died, and then you go on to the next guy. They just don't get it. So I would understand that from Gordon's standpoint, but John clarified a little bit over the weekend, said I had a big, hot piece of humble pie, which is kind of like a G-rated, like that's a, that's a little bit of a nerdy tweet. Right, for, for the guy, for the guy that, that was suspended for blowing coke, for him to put out that he had a fictitious piece of humble pie, like, it was just a little nerdy for me, I must tell you. Like, the coke was too extreme. But the humble pie, can we get, can we get somewhere in the middle here? Now, I bring up Gordon because after John has said these things, they interviewed Gordon, and both of these guys are pretty tight-lipped about those workouts, and they should be. I'm just sharing, if there was a longer video, I'd love to see it. Like, that, that is really a dream sparring session for a guy like me. But I love to watch two big, I, I love to watch. I was on vacation in San Diego and get a call that TJ Dillashaw is going to do a round-robin workout. It's going to be TJ Dillashaw, Juan Archuleta, and Brian Ortega. I was on vacation. And my wife's like, oh, you, you got to go. She's like, I'll, I'll watch the kids for a little bit. I drove an hour. I got a snack. I'm on the sidelines. My partner, Ryan, shows up. We just sat and watched it, right? I mean, think of that for a pay-per-view. It's right in front of me. Right in front of me. Awesome. I like that kind of stuff. Gordon, speaking on John, said that John is getting ready to retire after this fight. Now, that's a really big deal. It's a really big deal because that would have been a private conversation. And if John is speaking that way to his inner circle, it matters. You've got a presidential election coming up. You've got primary season. If a candidate hadn't told us the world yet they were retiring, but they went to their team, they went to their team and said, I'm going to resign this campaign. That team would be gone. He wouldn't wake up tomorrow and it's him and his team going on with interviews and next week, we're going to see this thing through and get a little bit more attention. No, they would be gone. They would go get jobs elsewhere. So if John is telling Gordon, who's a training partner, Gordon's going to go, okay, great. If I'm looking to keep training with MMA guys, particularly big name ones, I now need to go get my resume out there and find somebody else because I can't be hitched to this wagon for much longer. It's a big deal. 
And John knows that. He understands that. If he's putting that word out to his coaches, wouldn't matter if it's his mitt coach that's getting 100 bucks an hour. Wouldn't make a diff- bit of difference. That guy still needs somebody to fill that void. It would just add to the credibility of it. That's my concern. It would add to the credibility that John really does plan to retire. I don't want him to go. And there's going to be talk that John left because he was scared of the next era of fire. In this case, it would be the number one contender, Sergey Pavlich. He's too scared to fight him, and that's why he's going to leave. Now, that's not unique to John. John will feel as though that's unfair, and look at all of the guys I beat. He'll feel that way. The reason I know that that will happen is there's never been a great champion in history, and that includes boxing, to leave and then not have people say that. They tried to do it with Floyd. So Floyd just said, now screw it, I'll do it. And that was with Canelo Alvarez. Floyd's going to retire. He's going to leave because it's Canelo's turn. And Floyd said, you know what? I am going to leave and do all those things. I could put 10 rounds aside for this 21-year-old kid. I went up and chopped him up. I'm just sharing with you. Everybody goes through it. Klitschko went through it. Tyson went through it. Sugar Ray Leonard went through it. Everybody that steps aside. Khabib went through it. With Charles Oliveira. Hey, you were the same time. You're the same era. You fought everybody except him. And this guy sure looks good. Then they had two common opponents. Dustin Poirier was one of them. Who was the other common opponent? It was Justin Gaethje. And Charles Oliveira beat both of those guys collectively. He stopped a bull, so to be, but Justin, or, or, or Charles Oliveira did it in a collective one minute and 33 seconds faster. So you start to have some of these things until Islam gets in there and Khabib's in the corner. We find out that Islam supporters, I mean, everybody went through it. That's the only point I'm trying to make, and they will do it to John. Here's the problem, guys. I'm all for piling on John Jones. I'm all for it. Let's do it. We'll have a great time. But let's do it accurately. And it is inaccurate to say that John Jones is unwilling to fight Sergey Pavlich. I'm not positive for the people that are saying that, that they know Sergey Pavlich is the backup fighter for Miocic versus Jones. Now, even for the people that do know that, but say John is scared to fight Sergey, that would mean then you don't know how backup fighter works. And I'm not attempting to be condescending, but we got to tell the story accurately. John Jones has already agreed to beat Sergey. Now, I share with you guys behind the scenes, when the UFC wasn't sure they could get Stipe to the match, they went to John with a feeler. If we can't get him, this is who we're going to. Do you understand? John said, yes, that's an acceptance of the fight. Yes, I'm planning on Stipe. Exhaust all those options. They did. They started to exhaust all those options, and they got Stipe. But now you have Sergey as the backup fighter, which doesn't mean that you would just call Sergey Pavlich and you insert him and say, hey, will you be ready to fight one of these guys on short notice? Possibly even 24 hours or less. That's only one piece of it. You then check in with Stipe. Hey, if something happened with John, this is the backup guy. Do you understand? Yes. You call John. Hey, this is the backup guy. Do you understand what that means? Yes. Oh, th- that's an acceptance. So, so John has already two different ways. One in front of you guys and the other one I shared with you that was private. He's already accepted the fight with Sergey Pavlich. So if John really were to retire, and if he really is telling Gordon, if he really is telling his inner circle, I don't want that to happen. But there's so many things. If you plant it, it can grow. And Dana White was the first. He specifically was referring to Stipe Miocic. The first time Dana ever used the word retirement and this fight at Madison Square Garden. Win or lose, I don't believe we'll see Stipe again. 
he either goes out on top or he understands that his better days are behind him and this will be the biggest opportunity he gets and he will be gone. And that seems like a reasonable guess. It was nothing more than that. Dana wasn't saying I had inside conversation or even that I wouldn't welcome him back. He just made a guess and making a conversation. Somewhere, that guess, all of a sudden, like two or three conversations later, it now encompassed John Jones. Now, all of a sudden, the fight was just a retirement fight. Both guys, final walk. The most decorated heavyweight ever in Stipe, the greatest fighter ever in John. Retirement match. And I don't mind that. I don't love that from a marketing standpoint. I've seen it done before. I think it's a good hook. I don't mind the battle royal. I don't mind the coal miners glove match. I don't mind when you bring in the steel cage. I don't mind a tag team match. Like, it's a hook. I'm just sharing for you. It's not any better than a hair match. Like, you get a guy, two guys, and whoever loses is going to get his head shaved. Like, there's something there. It's a gimmick. Sure. Shake the snake Roberts. If, if I pin you, I'm going to cover you in a python snake named Damien. Like, it, there's something there. But I just didn't love the idea of the retirement match because I don't know what you do with it. Do you run it back as soon as it's over? Because if you do, you now let the audience know that I use this as a marketing angle. If you don't run it back and a guy starts to believe into it, what do you do then? Do you let him sit on the belt for 11 months? Because John would do that without question. It would not make it. John would lose no sleep whatsoever over that. So then you have to look back at, at the Henry Cejudo example of 246 after the Dominic Cruz fight when he says, I'm done. Dana very calmly, very calmly told the media, I will not hold Henry to that relinquishment of the belt. I heard him say it, but I won't hold him to it. It was right after a fight. He could have been marketing. He could have been negotiating. He could have been high on adrenaline. What I am going to do, this fight took place in Florida. What I am going to do is I'm going to travel home tomorrow. I'm going to see my family. I'm going to get in the office on Monday, get settled back in. On Tuesday morning at 9 a.m., I'm going to go into a matchmaker's meeting. I'm going to make the next title fight at that weight class. If Henry lets me know... That's him, then I will make it and find him an opponent and he will defend. If he lets me know, no, I did mean those words I thought of it, I will then find two new guys. And I will officially take the belt off Henry, it will officially go into vacant status, and we will officially set up a date to go out and compete for the unified title. It was perfect, there was no games. I just don't believe, and this is Chael talking, but I don't believe at all that John ever thought this was going to be a retirement fight, ever planned for it to be a retirement fight, or even the first time he said it was going to be a retirement fight, I don't believe he meant it. I don't think there was any sincerity. I think he saw this as a marketing opportunity. Dana said it. I'm going to jump on. I'm going to piggyback. This is the direction we're going. But I also believe that right now, currently, today, he's forgotten why he ever used that word in the first place. He, he never used that word had Dana not applied it to Stipe in a previous interview. The word retirement in this fight does not even exist. It's not even out there. And now John is apparently telling his inner circle, this is it. You want to collect a paycheck doing this, go find somebody else. Because your final one will be coming in March. I don't think he means it. And whether that started that way and now we're here and he does mean it, however it got there, or even if I have the first part wrong and... He was always planning to retire. What, whatever it is with John in retirement, I don't want it to happen. I don't care for John Jones. That's true. I do want John to keep participating and staying involved in the sport. That's also true.
show Unsolved Mysteries. It was very big in the 80s. Unsolved Mysteries and America's Most Wanted. One was NBC and one was Fox. And I'll just share for you. I watched them both. I never missed. And I will tell you, I had a hard time sleeping that night. I was a young kid, fifth, sixth grade. I don't think any older than seventh. Really well told stories. Hold the thought that that's actually where that ends. But there was one episode that I saw of Unsolved Mysteries all the way back then. And they just called it Lost Time. And they went with three different people. They said, apparently, this is a big thing that many people go through this. But they went and followed three different people that had lost time. There was two hours of their life. And they don't remember where they were or what they did. One guy was a soldier. He was going down the street. He was in full uniform. He was going down the street. He had checked his watch. He did something. Next time he checks his watch, hours had gone by. And he thought he was just on the same walk. He doesn't know where he went. Now, that sounds like a real fugazi story, right? And then you look into it, and it turns out that the guy had just robbed a bank. And I had no idea. Now, it wasn't like that. These guys didn't do anything. He said, I don't know where I was for two hours. I don't have any concussion. I wasn't hit in the head. I don't know, I don't know what I've done. I think we can all relate to that to some degree. Like, have you, ever guys, have you guys ever completely zoned out, not even know where you are for like 20 minutes, and then you realize, I'm driving? Like, that happens to everybody. How did I even change? I don't remember doing any of these things, right? Start listening to the radio, start daydreaming on something. That's as close as I can get you to lost time. That's as close as I can get you to my understanding of this. I experienced something yesterday, and I don't know what else to call it. I'm calling it lost time. Here's what happened. I wake up in San Diego. Day after the Bellator event, I board a plane. Now, on that plane, I sit by Megan Trapp. She's right up close with me. I'm seat number two. She's seat number three. But also on the plane, and more towards the back of it, was my coach, Fabiano Schur. Was Brett Primus. Was my lifelong friend and little brother, Mike Pierce. So when the plane lands, Megan and I are the first ones off. I will admit for you, we were somewhere in the first five people. Okay, first ones off is a little bit of a claim. Seat number two, she's seat number three. We get off the plane instantly. We discuss that we would like to see a bathroom, but we never stop at one. We discuss coffee, as a matter of fact. We landed here in Portland. It's a coffee town, but we never stopped and got a cup. We walked straight to baggage claim. We come down the escalator. There's a television. It says what flight and number you are. Tells you what baggage claim to go to. We stopped and looked at that extremely briefly. We see right away we're Alaska Airlines. So we're at the very top of the bill. Number two. We walk down to number two. We've wasted no time. When we get to the baggage claim number two, of which we got off the plane and walked straight to, talks of coffee, talks of bathroom, but it was nothing more than talks. We never stop walking. We never stop walking. We get right there. We're the first ones there, which means we're the only ones there. And shockingly, just as we walk up, they start the carousel. And that starts with like a buzz. And then it starts going around. It's going around. Seven bags is all that they got off when they started this carousel. Well, she was one of those seven bags. So talk about perfect timing. You get off the plane and you're the first one off. You get down to baggage claim and you're the first one there and you're one of seven bags and it's yours. She grabs her bag. She's on her way. And she and I even have a brief conversation of, gosh, that was amazing. How did Alaska get those bags here that fast? And I realize there's only a small handful and mine isn't one. So I'm going to wait and we, uh, a quick hug, good scene to see you down the road. She leaves. I continue to stand there. No one else comes up. Now, to make that a literal statement, there was a mother and her small child, a little boy that I would guess to be five years old. And the reason I know that is the five-year-old was excited and wanted to get the bag. So he did. 
Then he's got to get it over to his mom. But I happen to be by him and she happens to be on the other side. I said, young man, can I help you? Can I show you a trick? And I pulled the little handle up so he could move the bag better. And the mom yelled over to me, thanks. I threw a hand up. It's the only two people I ever saw there. No one ever comes. No one else from that flight ever comes to carousel number two. Not to mention my coach, who's 300 pounds, my lifelong friend, Mike Pierce, and Brent Primus, they never come. No one comes. They stop the carousel. Those seven bags I referenced. Megan grabbed one. Mom and little boy grab one. There's now five bags. And it stopped. They stopped moving. And a woman finally comes to me and says, sir, you've been here a very long time. Did you come in from San Diego? I said, yes. She said, well, you're at the right carousel. But you, you need to go to the ticket counter and let them scan your, your ticket. I, I said, no, ma'am, you're not understanding. I'm not the last one here. I'm the first. I'm the first one here. The bags aren't ready yet. And no one else has even come. She says, sir, I've been watching you since you got here, and you've been here about a half an hour. We have a 20-minute guarantee, which is true with Alaska. So I know that she's wrong. I know that I'm right. I know that the bags just aren't here yet. But she's now kind of bullied me. She's kind of peer pressured me. She's being very sweet. But it's the only reason I turned and went to the counter, put my baggage claim up there. They scan it, and sure enough, my bag was in the back. Security had brought it to them. So all the bags had gone. All the customers had gone. Bags were left behind to the point that they were taken off the carousel, checked into security, and in a secure room. How? How could have that possibly happened? How could any of those things be true? So I go to my teammates, by the way. I go in a group text to Brent, Fabiano, and Mike and say, hey, didn't see you guys at baggage claim. Did you not come down? Because there's got to be an answer. The screen changed, right? When I saw it, it was, it was number two. And then somewhere they made an announcement. They moved it to number seven. And the later people heard the announcement, there has to be an answer, right? Pierce says, no, we never went down there. We, we all had carry-ons only. So we just went right out to the car. Okay, great. Solves that part of it. So I go back to Megan. I said, Megan, I'm experiencing lost time. We got off the plane first yesterday. We walked straight to baggage claim. No stop anywhere. Discussion of bathroom, discussion of coffee, straight to baggage claim. Your bag was coming around, and we then had a conversation with each other about how impressive it was that Alaska got your bag that quickly. Do you dispute anything that I just said? And she said no. She said that's what happened. Yet no one else came. I was last. Security already was in possession of my bag. It had already been checked in. All my teammates are gone. You got a thought on that? I would love to hear it. All right, guys, I've had it with you all, but thank you for listening to today's episode. And thank you for remembering that if you want to leave a review to the program, you can do so over at Apple Podcasts. My producer and I read all of them. We love hearing from you. I'm going to be back with more on Friday because I got a lot more to say. Until then, I'm Chael Sonnen, and you are welcome. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live 
bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. 